Hey, Connell, what should we call this podcast? The Big Cheese. Oh, Jesus. You mean Jesus? Welcome to... (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Big Cheese. Political commentary from the Dairy State. The Great Purple Dairy State. That indeed. We'll We'll get more into that later. Hell yeah. My name is Emerson. My name is Connell. And yeah, uh, we are coming from coming to you from. <laughs> He's currently losing it right now. I am um, losing it. So a little information about myself, really quickly. Uh, I graduated from the University of Wisconsin Eau Claire with two degrees in history and political science. Um, I'm currently an unemployed bum, hoping to change that soon. And we're just here to talk about politics. I mean. I think what we've seen with the Trump administration is that a lot of people who previously tuned out to politics have now tuned in more. And I think that's just created a a general thirst for political knowledge. So kind of the purpose of this podcast is me and Emerson are going to be talking about various topics that we think are important to the voting public, people who are just involved in politics. Um, And so with that, we both agreed that the best topic for our first podcast would be the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Um, Very briefly, what the Voting Rights Act is, it's basically a federal law that prohibits discrimination in voting. Uh, It's designed to protect the voting rights of minority groups, um, in particular black people in, in the South, although it also applies to other groups as well. And it's just a landmark piece of legislation, I would say of the legislation passed in the 20th century by the United States Congress, the Voting Rights Act, is the most significant next to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Uh, So those being very close together in dates, not a coincidence, that that those were both the results of uh, tremendously brave work done by the people of the Civil Rights Movement, which we will also talk about. But uh, for now, we're just going to give a general outline of things, and we'll discuss the Voting Rights Act in more depth later. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Um, Well, yeah, so you pretty much already gave our basic definition of the Voting Rights Act. Um, So shall we dive in deeper into its history? absolutely. Into its need? So basically the history starts around the time of the Civil War, particularly around the time of the end of the Civil War, where you had... Millions of freed slaves, vast majority of them concentrated in the South, and the big question is, well, what what are we going to do with these people? I mean, they're here now. They need to have some protections. They need to have rights, and the more the more radical folks of the day said they should have full rights unequivocally with white Americans. There there should be no hedging on that. A lot of people were uncomfortable with that, though. But Eventually, you got the 14th Amendment to the Constitution in 1868 and the 15th Amendment to the Constitution in 1870. Um, The 14th Amendment basically, among other things, says if you were born in the United States, you are an American citizen. So all the slaves who were born in the United States, they were now American citizens. And that all people are entitled to the equal protection of the laws of the United States. So all citizens of the United States, black, white, white. you have equal protection under the laws, at least theoretically. Sorry, what years were those? Yeah, so the 14th Amendment was passed in 1868, and the 15th Amendment was passed in 1870. So this was in the midst of Reconstruction. The Civil War had been over for a few years by that point. Uh, the Civil War ended in 1865. So basically the reason you had these 
protections in place is they weren't gratuitous, right? I mean, you had Southern slaveholders who had just fought a war to preserve slavery, and they were very angry about the fact that they had lost their valuable money-making property. And they were now, not only that, they were now co-equals of them, and that caused a lot of anger and resentment. And you saw a lot of violence break out in the South toward the freed people uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War. So the federal government, in response to this, uh, passed these amendments to ensure that the freed slaves could not be returned to a condition of effective slavery. Right. And I'm sure that was 100% effective, foolproof, and nothing went wrong. <laughs> it's interesting. See, it's interesting, though, because from circa 1865 to 1877, the period of Reconstruction that's most commonly given, um, you actually did have a lot of participation in civic life by black folks in the South. You had black office holders. You had black congressmen. You had black senators. You had two black senators during Reconstruction. It was just incredible. In the 1800s? In the 1800s. In the 1870s, yeah. You had this immense civic participation by black people never seen in American history. 2,000 black people held office during this period of time. Right, and some of them held their offices well into the 1890s, even. But to your point, um, in the late 1870s, there was a general sense among both the North and the South that, look, you know, this black-white stuff, the the freed slaves, who who the Reconstruction, who cares about any of that? We have other things to be worrying about. We don't want to keep federal troops occupying the South in order to ensure that they're not oppressing black folks we just don't care about that anymore so let's you know uh, long and story short uh, after the presidential election of 1876 there was an agreement reached uh, that in exchange for electing republican rutherford hayes to the presidency the federal government would end its support for reconstruction and so that was the withdrawal of federal forces from the south ensuring that state governments there did not effectively try to re-enslave black folks or at least strip them of their rights. Wait, you're saying they traded a president for this deal? Yes, it was a contentious election where the electoral votes of several states were in doubt, so Congress hammered out a compromise that said in exchange for the Republican winning this contentious election that you could argue he didn't actually win, uh, we'll stop supporting uh black folks in the South is essentially what it boils down to. Um, we're not going to get into the nitty-gritty too much here. That's all you really need to know right now is that by the end of the 1870s, the federal government and the general public were tired of Reconstruction and just didn't really care that much about what happened to the black folks in the South for the most part. You had a handful of exceptions, but they were definitely exceptions. Yeah, all right. Um... Let's see. What do you think the what What do you think is the follow up to that? Um, yeah. So the follow up to Reconstruction is Jim Crow. Jim Crow. You you we hear that term a lot still to this day, especially when we talk about the legacy of historical oppression faced by black folks in this country. And Jim Crow often gets mentioned a lot, rightfully so. In in my mind, I would say Jim Crow is just well. Jim Crow feels synony- synonymous with segregation. It absolutely is, yes. Um, I, I mean, Jim Crow was a very sophisticated system of America's version of apartheid, essentially, right? So where you just have these laws and these social codes 
that are very strictly obeyed uh, and violation of them is seen as extremely serious uh, and possibly deadly. Um, so Jim Crow itself began, It's you can't give a precise date. Sometimes it's given as 1877, but you didn't really start to see Jim Crow laws until the very end of the 19th century. So late 1880s, early 1890s, uh, then you start to see states imposing these constitutions in the South, and this is mostly in the South that we're talking about here, um, that basically made it really difficult for black folks to vote um, and do other things, but these constitutions always had at the heart of them stripping black power away from black folks, right, that they can't vote. They shouldn't be able to vote because if they vote, they could seriously challenge the system of segregation, particularly mm-hmm. if they partnered up with, say, poor or white people to challenge the system of segregation. That could be quite formidable. And you did see that happen uh, in the days of Reconstruction. So poor they, white people cha- teaming up with yes, uh, yes. Uh, black folks that were. Yeah, you saw it yeah. in places like Virginia in the 1880s, for example. So these constitutions were designed to prevent those types of coalitions from forming. Um, to use it as a microcosm of the general example of, of Jim Crow and how it worked, uh, I'm going to use your other home state here as an example. I, I did oh, some research. Don't. So um, <laughs> Virginia, uh, it's interesting. Virginia was considered one of the more moderate southern states, but it still had a pretty nasty system of uh, Jim Crow in place. So in 1902, Virginia ratified a constitution, a state constitution, that was essentially aimed at nullifying the 15th Amendment. And what the 15th Amendment uh, does is essentially say you cannot discriminate uh, against someone uh, trying to vote on the basis of their race. That's essentially what the 15th Amendment is. And you're saying Virginia wanted to get rid of that amendment? Effectively making it unenforceable, right? Because they knew that the federal government wasn't going to be stepping in to interfere with their internal affairs anytime soon. So this constitution was kind of the nail in the coffin for black political rights in the state of Virginia. Um, Sorry, it was a state constitution? Yes, it was a state constitution. Um, So one of the things that it did, for example, was it imposed a $1.50 poll tax uh, to be paid six months. That is six months in advance of an election. And you had to be up to date on your poll tax payments for the past three years. So, yeah, exactly. It's just it's you look at all of these these things that were used by southern government. It's 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 insidious, like just how cleverly effective they were, because they were designed to make it as difficult as humanly possible to say you can't vote without actually making it too too obvious what was being done it's like oh well you know it's just a poll tax you know 150 you can't have one who can't afford 150 right that's not that much money but of course if you're a poor black sharecropper right that is a ton of money you don't if you're a black sharecropper chances are you don't have any cash like all of your all of your wealth is in your possessions you don't have cash to be throwing around so it's just it's one of those things where it's designed to disenfranchise people without overtly saying, yeah, we're, we're disenfranchising <laughs> people. It's it's very, very evil. Um, how did they even, for the people that even did have the money, how would they keep track of that whole 
for the past three years it's, you have to have exactly. it. Exactly. It's, it's, it's not meant to be user-friendly, oh, right? Okay. It's meant to be extremely difficult and unfair. Yeah. So as another example of what they could do in Virginia to make sure that black folks didn't vote was so they could actually quiz voters to give a reasonable explanation of any section of the state constitution at the demand of a voter registration board. So literally, if you're a black voter trying to register to vote, the the board can basically grill you on the state constitution. They can, you know, it, it, uh, select the most obscure provision and say, okay, explain this to us. What does that mean? And then even if the person gives you a good explanation, they can still say, you know, honestly, we don't think that's actually a satisfactory explanation uh, there, so we're not going to allow you to register to vote. Sorry, we only want well-informed voters voting. That's some bullshit. It is. It, it is extremely. And it's just you – if you're a black person, your your remedies to challenging that are really not all all that extant. I mean – you, you can go to the courts, but the courts in the South, again, are dominated by people sympathetic to these Jim Crow views, right? And the federal government has written you off, right? They did that at this point several decades ago. So there's really not a whole lot of recourse you have beyond, you know, skul- you know sulk- sulking off and swearing, maybe. I don't know. Like, it's, it's infuriating. Um, and just to keep in mind, so we have a frame of reference here. Um, this constitution, so this was passed in 1902, this constitution would be effect in the state of Virginia until 1971, okay? So for 70 years, this would be the official state constitution of your other home state until the early 70s. With the, with the poll tax? Uh, yes, with the poll tax, although we can talk about poll taxes more in a bit. They, they were uh, made illegal by the Voting Rights Act. Um, so this is just one example of the many ways that Southern states disenfranchise black folks. I just chose Virginia cause you know, Virginia, yeah. um, but this is not unique. The Jim Crow South pulled all these kinds of stunts and this only relates to voting. Like you also had official segregation, things like if you're trying to ride in a train car, Black folks have to ride in one section of a car. White folks have to ride in another section of a car. And just all these different ways that life was made extremely difficult and unbearable for black folks in the South. And it was designed to uh, reinforce their inferior status, right? That was Jim Crow, right? Mm -hmm. The legal system of Jim Crow was always designed to uphold white supremacy. It was always designed to essentially say to black folks, know so many words, you are inferior, whites are superior. Yeah. Well, I've got – so where did the name – why is it called Jim Crow? Yeah, so it's called Jim Crow um, because in the 1830s uh, there was minstrelsy. So minstrelsy was a basically like traveling theater, and one thing minstrelsy often did was white performers would – put makeup or coal or coal all over their face or mud all over their face yeah. and pretend to be a black person. Black and this face, is yeah. black, yep, blackface. Very racist. Um, and, you know, oftentimes the, the black folks in these performances were depicted as simpletons, as idiots, right? And again, it reinforces that notion that blacks are inferior to white people. Um, and and a lot of the racial stereotypes that we still have to these to this day in, have their origins in minstrelsy, mm-hmm. and it came so Jim Crow came from like a minstrel tune, 
Um, really? Yeah, and that's Jump Jim Crow. That oh. That's why it, it's referred to as that, because I'm not exactly sure how it got the name, like how that stuck to refer to segregation, but that that is what it, it refers to. Was Jim Crow a black character yes, in a minstrel show? Yes, oh. Jump Jim Crow, yeah. So I never knew that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I'll have to look into more how exactly that came to be associated with segregation. But minstrelsy remains popular for g- generations afterward. Yeah. Um, so, and of course, you still have folks getting caught in blackface to in this day. Yeah, to yeah. this day. So we still live with this legacy. You this is not a, a dead. This is not a dead issue. Um, but yeah, so. Jim Crow, in a nutshell, designed to politically disenfranchise black people and to reinforce their inferiority in other ways by segregating them to inferior facilities, particularly schools. So there were, there must have been people Mm -hmm. that changed, that changed the status quo. Absolutely. There were great leaders, I should say. I mean, well, you're talking about the different, the different places on the bus and that makes my, or the different places on the the rail cars and that, you know, my mind jumps to to Rosa Parks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just to give you an idea of what these people were up against, just what what they were standing against, because it took a lot of bravery to stand up to Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. This wasn't just you getting called the N-word. This was so much this was so much more than that. And that's bad, don't get me wrong. It's just you could be lynched. Yeah. And just for some context here, um from eighteen seventy seven to nineteen fifty there were 4,400 lynchings of black people in the United States, the vast majority of those being in the South. And I would also point out that the United States government, the federal government, did not officially ban lynching until 2018, a year ago, at the end of 2018 when the United States Congress passed a, a modest criminal justice reform bill. Excuse me? You said 2018, 2018? I, I said 2018. You mean the year that was just, that we yes, were just in? yep, that we were just in 2018, folks. Not long not long ago, me and Emerson were canvassing, me and a couple of goofballs, <laughs> and yeah, at that point, lynching had not, had not been banned by the United States federal government. It wasn't until December of 2018 that it was finally banned in federal law. So it's, it's one of those things where... Jim Crow has cast a long shadow over our politics, which is part of the reason why we're talking about it today, and a measure that was intended to uh, address the inequities of Jim Crow. Um, One thing I'd also point out is that because the Jim Crow South was so, so oppressive, like the sweltering heat of oppression, as MLK put it, uh, you saw what was called the Great Migration from circa 1910 to 1970. Basically, part of the reason why you have such large presences of black folks in so many communities in, say, northern cities like Chicago is because of the Great Migration out of the Jim Crow South. So with all of that being said, um, this is the context uh, in which the civil rights movement sprang up to ultimately put an end to the system of Jim Crow that oppressed and killed black people in, in the South from for so many years. Um, and, and I'm sorry, the, the great migration was fueled by people fearing for their lives. And essentially. Locations. Right. I mean, and that's the thing is that a lot of these po- folks, they weren't terribly rich, right? They didn't have a whole lot of money, but they were so desperate to get out of the South, even though it was their home because they just couldn't bear the conditions of Jim Crow 
right? I mean, essentially what Jim Crow was, in a nutshell, was a system of racial terrorism. And that was enforced by groups like the KKK, but it was also uh, enforced by sheriffs and law enforcement in the South, right? It was just this entire system that threw its weight on the backs of black people. And, I mean, I, I couldn't blame anybody for wanting to get out of those circumstances if they could. Um, but, yes. Uh, so let's talk now about the Civil Rights Movement. Yes, please. Um, so the Civil Rights Movement, you can actually divvy up into a few phases. And one of the ultimate victories of the Civil Rights Movement was the Voting Rights Act. But that took a lot of work to get to that point. It took a lot of work and sacrifice to get to the point of the Voting Rights Act being passed. So essentially, one of the first phases of the civil rights movement was the legal activism of the NAACP. And this was from the 1920s to the 1950s. This was the primary form of civil rights activism uh, that you saw at that point. Um, And ultimately, the NAACP's ultimate victory led by the great lawyer and future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, culminated in the Supreme Court decision Brown versus Board of Education. It was actually two decisions, uh, one in 1954 and one in 1955. And among other things, uh, the Supreme Court unanimously said, uh, there were no dissenters, that segregated schools must desegregate with all deliberate speed. That was the wording used, that segregation is unconstitutional, it violates the rights of black children by consigning them to inferior schools, it violates their 14th Amendment rights uh, to equal protections of the law, right? It, it basically consigned them to an inferior status. And the NAACP did a very good job of of showing this. They had a ton of sociological and psychological research that showed how segregation made black children feel inferior to white children, which was the intended purpose of it. That was that was by design, mm-hmm. right? And so what in essence the Brown v. Board decision said was the previous doctrine of separate but equal, which is to say, oh, you can have segregated schools as long as the black schools are just as good as the white schools, which everybody who was being honest with themselves knew was total BS. Like, that was totally just a feel-good contrivance by white people to make them be like, oh, well, we're being just to the black folks. What are you talking about? We don't have a we don't have a racial inequality problem. Separate so, but equal. Separate but equal. And Brown v. Board said, nope, separate but equal is inherently unequal. That was from this decision that no there is no such thing as separate but equal you have to, you have to integrate schools mm-hmm. and this as you can imagine set off a massive firestorm that would come to dominate US politics for the next two decades or so um sorry two quick questions sure one was this in the middle of the school year and you said with all de- deliberate speed would this be like on a tuesday in like the middle of February and then they're like, oh, actually, no, tomorrow, like, all your schools are going to be... De- I, mean, I just want to get a context for what, like, the kids went through. Absolutely. So you actually hit on a really good point here because that phrasing with all deliberate speed immediately provoked the question, well, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean in terms of a timeline? So the question you're asking is a question people were asking then, too. And there, the, the answer is there was no clear timeline. Um, so... 
realistically, you didn't see a robust effort at school integration start until around the late 50s. So keep in mind, Brown v. Board, both decisions were mid-50s, 54, 55. You didn't start to really see a more aggressive effort until around 57, 58. Um, And keep in mind also, the Supreme Court knew that this was a firebomb, right? That this was just going to be a decision. And they were worried about things like rioting, right? There was a serious concern that this was going to spark an incredible amount of violence, So they actually, before they issued their decision, sat on the case for two years before they finally uh, issued their decision, which is very unusual for the Supreme Court to do. Um, But they knew what they were dealing with. I mean, keep in mind, these are people's educations, right? These are children's educations. And that's something that, you know, inspires a lot of emotions in people. Mm -hmm. And if you're a racist white parent who thinks that black folks are essentially the devil, and then some Supreme Court, some nine black-robed justices say, you now have to get rid of that. That's going to piss you off, obviously, um, and piss people off in the South. It did. Um, Anecdotally, I have a professor who grew up uh, for much of his young life in Texas, and one thing he, when we were talking about Brown and the Civil Rights Movement, he mentioned was he remembers as a young child in the South driving all around the South, doesn't matter where you went, you would see these massive billboards that said, impeach Earl Warren, Earl Warren being the chief justice of the Supreme Court at the time, Brown. Brown v. Board. Yeah, Brown v. Board was uh, issued. I think he also, yeah, he wrote the decision. Um, So he was hated. He was a maligned bastard. He was just the the representation of evil to a lot of Southern whites because here is this overbearing Yankee government telling us what to do with our lives and they don't understand us and they don't care about us. All they care about is those black folks and they probably didn't phrase it that way. Um, probably not. So it, it was cr- really quite something. And I, you know, just to use one example, in 1957, you had the Little Rock Nine where Little Rock, Arkansas was trying to integrate it's public schools and president eisenhower literally had to send the army to integrate little rock high schools because these nine children would not be safe unless they were escorted to school by the united states army okay this is how serious this was that you had people who were so threatened by integration that they were willing to murder black children right this is like this was not messing around this wasn't just rhetoric this was this was real um, but so in, in tandem with Brown, right, you do see in the 1950s this rise of direct activism by the likes of figures Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, Fred Shuttlesworth, Bayard Rustin, John Lewis. Um, and they essentially, instead of just working through the court system and working through the legal system, so mainly lawsuits and things like that, they say, no, we need to take direct action. We need to strike at the heart of Jim Crow and make it clear that there is a mass movement of people who are not going to deal with this anymore, right? And and that began most famously with the Montgomery uh, bus boycott of 1955 to 1956, organized by Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and some other uh, local organizers there. Um, 
And that also really gave rise to the career of Martin Luther King Jr. as this sort of spokesman for the civil rights movement. I was going to say, was that is that like his first demonstration or his first uh, organization of sorts? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and it, it achieved results because m- the Montgomery bus system, the transportation system in the city, desegregated. Um, and so what that showed was this direct action, just working, uh, going through the going to the streets, right. And mass having mass boycotts, that can work, right? That you don't just need to use the legal system and have this very slow, agonizing process that can take years and years. If you organize, you can you can fight Jim Crow and you can overturn mm-hmm. Jim Crow and you can chip away at the edifice of Jim Crow. Um, and one of the big things uh, that were among their goals of the civil rights movement generally in the various, organizations in it was a restoration of black voting rights in the south um hallelujah (laughs) hallelujah yeah i mean it's just it's one of those things where keep in mind by by the time the 60s roll around you know jim crow has been a but in place for oh i don't know 80 years like there's not really a time anymore at that point where where black folks in the south can recall yeah i mean we used to be able to vote we used to even hold office in the south Right. I mean, that got passed down yeah, through stories. Right. I mean, that was very prominent in the historical memory of black folks that there was a time when black folks sat in the U.S. Senate and the United States Congress. OK, a there, very short period, a very time. short period of time. But it was significant yeah. because it never it never faded in terms of. Of the idea that this was possible once more, that this you did not have to accept segregation, that it was imposed on you by violence, right, by the Klan, by the state governments. It was not the natural order of things, which was the art, which was essentially the argument of the segregationists, right? That oh well, you know, the races they're not meant to mix, right? It just causes all sorts of trouble. So, in point of fact, being apart from each other, that's actually best, not just for us as white people, but for the black folks too. But again, it's just a feel-good contrivance to make racism sound more appealing, right? Like that's not actually true. We have so much evidence to show how segregation harmed black folks and continues to harm them, mm-hmm. because I mean, we still have segregation in this country it's just not legally mandated anymore mm-hmm. do you want to dive in more into that into mo- modern day or should we p- put a pin in that we'll put a pin in that put for now i would say just modern day here i'm gonna jot that down sure <laughs> i would point out that in our great state of wisconsin which i do love very much um just before we move on milwaukee is by many measures uh, the most segregated city in the country and if it's not by any particular measure the most segregated city it's usually not far behind number 1 it has a lot of a lot of issues and i mean for anybody who's been to milwaukee you know what part of town you're in really quickly in terms of the racial composition of it mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry. What's next? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So there were a few civil rights events that I think were critical to ultimately putting the pressure on President Kennedy and later President Johnson, since Kennedy was assassinated in late 1963, to take action on civil rights uh, and voting rights. Um, and those events, just to quickly go through them, the 1963 March on Washington, which saw 250,000 people converge on the Capitol, uh, demanding, among other things, uh, jobs 
and freedom, right? It was called the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And of course, <laughs> yeah, but it, it states the goals. Yeah. Like it's being very upfront. This is what we want. And of course, that is most well remembered in the public consciousness as the event at which Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, spoke and gave his most famous speech, the I Have a Dream speech, where he lays out his vision for America, where he discusses the the awful oppressions of Jim Crow, but how to, not only that, right, but also how to overcome it. He articulates this very powerful vision of hope, that it is to say, you don't have to, we don't have to be segregated anymore. We don't have to live this way. You can have a better society, and we will achieve a better society, right? And I think that is in part why it's such a moving speech, because it's fundamentally optimistic, right? It presents a very harrowing view of race relations in America up to that point, but it also says but that it doesn't have to be that way. And I, I think that that very much appeals to people because they don't want to just be confronted with all of these problems in the sense that they have to feel that we have to live with these problems. We always have to live this way. It can't be better. Things can't be better. But what Martin Luther King Jr. said was, no, things can be better and we can make them better. And we are better than this. So who's our modern day MLK? I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if it's that simple anymore. I mean, MLK had his detractors, including from his allies uh, in his own day. Um, so I, I would say you have a lot of great civil rights organizations doing this type of work these days. The NAACP um, in North Carolina in particular does a lot of really good work resisting mm-hmm. uh, voter suppression attempts. Um, William Barber was the president of the North Carolina NAACP for a while. I guess, you know, if you wanted a modern day analog to <laughs> to MLK, he might be a, a good candidate for that. Um, but, you know, I think Martin Luther King Jr. came at a unique historical moment in American history and he fulfilled his role and then he was murdered um, mm-hmm. because he was always a very controversial figure. He was not beloved by many in his day. In fact, he was hated by a lot of white people. You know, it was only in hindsight that so many white people uh, evoke his name reverentially. Oh, Martin Luther King Jr., St. Martin, what would you do? But it's the sanctification of him was posthumous, right? It was to say that he was hated by most white people in his day. When he was killed in Memphis, Tennessee, he had a disapproval rating among white people of like white Americans of like two-thirds. So like 67% of white people did not like him in 1968. Yeah, and he was a symbol, but he was a symbol of what many white people were uncomfortable with. Exactly. Right? And that's that's a thing. He reminded them of the faults of their beloved country and demanded that they make it better. And just many people, and many people are still uncomfortable with that, that they get reminded of the flaws of America. And then when they face demands to make it better, they push back. They don't, they don't internalize it. They say, no, no, you're demanding too much. You, you're just complaining. Yeah. Right. And that's not new. We don't need new solutions. Like we're fine now. (laughs) Yes. So moving on from the March on Washington. Yeah. What's um, the next, what's the next big one? uh, We have the, uh, KKK bombing of the Birmingham 16th Street Baptist Street, uh, ba- Baptist Street t- Church, excuse me, um, in September of 1963. That's just a few weeks after the March on Washington, where uh, the 16th Street Baptist Church was a very important symbol of the civil rights movement. Uh, a lot of civil rights organizing was done there in uh, the midst of Alabama, the most segregated state uh, in the country. 
Uh, and so the clan targeted it, and they planted a bomb there, and it ended up killing four young black girls. Um, and that was a moment where I think a lot of people, including white people, woke up in the country and were like, oh my God, the, you know, segregationists are willing to kill black children in order to preserve segregation. Yeah. Like, that's how serious they are about this. Um, and Martin Luther King Jr. gave a very controversial oration at the, uh, at the funeral uh, for some of the girls. And he basically, he not only blamed segregationist politicians like George Wallace, governor of Alabama. He also blamed complacent black folks. He said, you have been complacent up to this point. You know, you sat around while people have been trying to fight segregation and done nothing, and this is the culmination of that. This is the culmination of your complacency on segregation. That was extremely controversial. That was MLK Jr. That was, M- that was MLK yeah. saying that, yeah. right? That it wasn't just white folks' fault. That it was black folks for not fighting segregationist war, and that wow. that's yeah, that's one of his more controversial statements he ever made. But it also, you know, did give the sense in the country that something needed to be done with regards to civil rights. That the status quo was very obviously not working, and not only was it not working, it was falling apart. Right, that you had this serious concern that you were going to see a lot more bombings like that. And keep in mind, Birmingham had already seen several bombings before that. It got the nickname Bombingham because the Klan just perpetrated so many bombings there, but most of them hadn't killed people, and especially not children. So that was considered an escalation of this of this ongoing Klan terrorism. And I'm sorry, where is MLK Jr. from? He is from Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, My geography is real bad. Don't even sweat it. <laughs> um, so then, fast forwarding a bit, you have this renewed impetus to do something on civil rights as a result of the March on Washington and the 16th Street church bombing. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you, in 1964, got Freedom Summer. Freedom Summer was essentially, it was organized by young people. I'd like to point this out, that it was young people in their 20s who organized this. It wasn't a music festival? It was not. It was not a music festival. It was the last, it was, It was. yeah, definitely not a music festival. And I, I would, okay, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say, I don't want to be mean. Um, but, <clears throat> so essentially, young folks, college students mainly, um, got on buses. It, this was organized by... SNCC, um, a student organization, the Student National Coordinating Committee, or okay. Nonviolent co- uh, Coordinating Committee, uh, the NAACP, a few other organizations, uh, Martin Luther King's organization, the SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And they basically, they got on buses, they trucked on down to Mississippi, often being terrorized by the Klan on the way there mm-hmm. because they were very much not welcome because what were they doing? Ah, they were planning to register black folks to vote. And, and keep in mind, in 1964, hey, Emerson, take a guess how many black, what percentage of the black population of the state of Mississippi was registered to vote? 1964? 1964. Take a guess. You probably can guess that it's a low number. Uh, 10%? <laughs> Lower. Jesus. 5%? 5% of the Mississippi's black population was registered to vote. And keep in mind, Mississippi, I think at this time, was still a majority black state. But yet, 
5% of their black population was registered to vote. So they wanted to change it. They wanted to hold voter registration drives in the small black towns of Mississippi, part of the black belt, mm-hmm. and just get these folks registered to vote. And the Klan, the Klan did not like that. So one of the most infamous civil rights crimes uh, to come out of the civil rights movement uh, was when the KKK um, kidnapped three civil rights workers in Mississippi and murdered them um, mm-hmm. near Philadelphia, Mississippi. Um, and that was, two of them were white, one of them was black. Um, the rings of vague. Yes, though. yes. And they, it was, it was kind of amazing because guess what? The Klan was willing to kill white people. Mm-hmm. as If they were perceived as threatening the status quo of segregation, they were willing to kill white people. Mm-hmm. And that was that was also considered an escalation, right? Because it was sort of understood that, okay, well, they're going to go after the black folks, but they're not going to actually kill white people. They might rough them up a bit, but they're not going to kill – oh, but they'll kill them, right? And that was, that was significant. It was saying it, – it sent a message that, listen, if you're white and if you're perceived on the side of civil rights, these folks will have no compunctions about killing you. Mm-hmm. They will do it. And they did. Um and so, you know, that was another escalation that showed that the Klan was feeling threatened, segregationists were feeling threatened, but also that, again, the status quo was just not tenable, right? You just, it wasn't going to work because you just had even more of this violence, this this Klan terrorism that was killing people. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, you know, this kind of contributes even more to this notion that we've got to do more, right? You can have voter registration drives, but if you don't have power, right, if you don't have the power of the federal government fully behind you, then you get things like this, right? You get civil rights workers volunteering their own time and their lives to register people to vote. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's not sustainable, right? You you need something else. You need something more. Institutional. Yes, exactly. Um, so that fast forwards to the spring, which at this point, just to uh, give a brief update, uh, JFK is dead. He was assassinated um, in late 63. And Lyndon Johnson has now been president uh, for about a year. Okay. And um, so it's early 1965. And Martin Luther King Jr., now that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, mm-hmm. he wants to apply more pressure to the federal government to get a Voting Rights Act passed, specifically addressing the problem of voting that the Freedom Summer uh, Freedom Summer people were trying to address, right, to get the institutional backing of the federal government behind voting rights. So he decided to plan the Selma to Montgomery March, right? Nice. Uh, I mean, if anybody's seen Selma, great movie does a great job of covering the events in Selma. Oprah is in it. Can't go wrong with Oprah. Um, It's a great, very powerful movie. I I highly recommend it. It's seriously uh, just a great watch. But yes. When did that come out? That came out in 2014. I don't think I've seen it. I I gotta get on uh, that. Yeah, I I have it. I I don't have it with me right now. Anyway, um, so this is what the movie is about. Basically, this idea that you're going to have this mass march of people from the Alabama city of Selma to the capital of Montgomery, Alabama. Mm. And uh, that was to apply pressure to the federal government to do something about voting rights. Because, you know, 
the feds, they didn't like these marches. They had the big possibility of violence, right? And, of course, Martin Luther King Jr.'s approach was nonviolence. But he said, well, the point of nonviolence is to provoke a response in order to show the injustice of the situation. So they knew what they were doing, and they knew what they were getting into. Mm -hmm. So, essentially, what happened was is that when they started to march to the Edmund Pettus Bridge in, in Selma... There were Alabama state troopers there who basically said, this is an unlawful assembly. You have two minutes to disperse, right? If, and if you don't disperse, we will disperse you. Why and, was it – how was it unlawful? Because they're – I mean they're agitators, right? That was what they always called civil rights demonstrators. Oh, okay. Agitators, outside agitators who are trying to stir up trouble and they're no good, right? They're no good troublemakers as a way to delegitimize their cause, Yeah. right? But, of course, the whole point was to resist this, right, to not give in to the pressure mm -hmm. of, of law enforcement to, to disperse. So they keep marching toward the, uh, the troopers, at which point they then get tear gassed and the state troopers uh, advance toward them, and billy clubs out, and just start beating them, uh, beating the living hell out of these protesters. Um, John Lewis, a uh, very famous civil rights activist, now a congressman, um, got got his head beaten. Like, there's a very famous photo of him just getting the living living hell beat out of him. Um, and like, keep in mind also, this is being uh, this is being filmed, right? These this is being filmed, so people are seeing the the response of the Alabama government to people trying to get voting rights, right? And it's totally disproportionate. It's totally violent. And that's the point of the civil rights movement is to illustrate the violence inherent to the Jim Crow system in order to prove their point as to why it needs to go. Jim, it, I was just going to say, is this like I'm, I'm picturing in my head right now a video of people getting sprayed with fire hoses yeah, and yeah. dogs. Right. That's from Birmingham. That's from Birmingham. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. from Birmingham. It was, yeah, and that, we can talk about Birmingham maybe some other time, but yes, like that all ties into this narrative of segregationist police forces and governments using copious amounts of violence against peaceful protesters mm -hmm. because they're so threatened by them, right, that they, they just don't know how to respond. And that's, again, that's the brilliance of of nonviolence is it just it provokes that response and shows the injustice that is taking place that shows for all to see that this is what this system is yeah. it's violence it's violence against peaceful people um so this kind of Selma to Montgomery you know and just as a final note I'd like to just quote from a, a book I read several years ago um by John Lewis the activist who was beat there um and he wrote, something was born at Selma, but something also died there that day. And Selma was kind of this pivotal moment in the civil rights movement where you saw this divergence between those who still advocated nonviolent activism versus those who wanted a much more muscular and militant approach. So this was kind of how you got the, the origins of black power, where it's like, no, we're not going to be peaceful. We're going to defend ourselves. We're going to get weapons, and if you shoot at us, we shoot right back. Mm -hmm. You know, we are not afraid to kill white people if we've got to do that to defend ourselves. That's mm -hmm. what, you know, that's black power, right? And so seeing that overly violent 
response to peaceful protesters convinced a lot of black folks that no, you know, this isn't working. This just gets us beat up and killed. It's not working. We need something more robust. But uh, so that's just a, a side note, right? Because Selma, uh, Selma is a very important event in civil rights history, um, and it also uh, spurred the government into taking bolder action on voting rights. Yeah, um, which does culminate after Dixiecrat stalling and filibustering into Lyndon Johnson signing the Voting Rights Act in August of 1965. All right. It took him long enough. Yeah. Yeah, and it took us long enough to get to this point, but I did want to provide the full context of what this all led up to. I think that's why we're doing this. Yes, exactly. We want people to have this context. I don't have this context. Right. Magic Conch over here. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> that's my nickname for Connell. That's that's Connell's nickname on on Twitter. His his first name Connell, oh. last name Chambers. Magic Conch. It's also a SpongeBob reference, but It's also SpongeBob. <laughs> Magic Conch. Um yeah, you said the word Dixiecrat? Yeah. Um spelled D I X I E crat. Dixiecrat. Referring to Dixieland, right? Dixie being the South, right? Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you might want to know what a Dixiecrat is. Yeah, I do. Okay. Yeah, the Dixiecrats were a conservative faction of Southern Democrats um, that essentially their most important cause was preserving segregation. I mean, in many ways they were typical of a Democrat in the of the day. Like, they wanted things like expanded social welfare programs, mm-hmm. but they always qualified that with making sure those programs benefited white people and did not benefit their black constituents. Because keep in mind, these were Southern senators who had sizable black populations that they were theoretically supposed to be representing, but they didn't Yeah, uh, because they were disenfranchised. So it's not like they had to worry about the black they vote. There the was vote. no black vote. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so they they often when civil rights measures got blocked in the Senate Mm -hmm. and it was usually the Senate in which they got blocked. That wonderfully democratic institution said with a heavy amount of sarcasm, um, (laughs) it was led by the Dixiecrats. So anti-lynching measures blocked by the Dixiecrats. Previous attempts at civil rights bills blocked by the Dixiecrats. Uh, This attempt at a Voting Rights Act was being filibustered by the Dixiecrats, but because there was such overwhelming support in favor of the uh, Voting Rights Act by Northern Democrats and a lot of Republicans, mm-hmm. they were able to break the filibuster and pass the legislation. Um, but yes, like the Dixiecrats were some of the some of the biggest reasons why you still had segregation, yeah. including in your state, uh, of your home state of Virginia, dominated by the Bird Machine. Be uh, YRD, uh, basically a very prominent political family that controlled the politics of your state from the end of the 19th century to the 1960s. Uh, and they were Dixiecrats. I'm glad I wasn't there then. George Wallace, Dixiecrat. Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, Dixiecrat. Uh, all famous segregationist politicians who did their utmost to uh, hold off human progress. Huh. <laughs> um, so, uh, the Voting Rights Act is signed into law in August of 1965, and finally, uh, the the blood, sweat, and tears of so many people it culminates in one of the most important legislative achievements of the 20th century in the United mm-hmm. States. 
Um, so you perhaps have some questions about the Voting Rights Act itself? Uh, yeah. Um, let me think. Probably number one, I'd say what what does it do? In t- like, I mean, I'm yeah. sure I'm sure there are many. Indeed, there are many <laughs> parts to it. There are many parts to it, but in general, um, so the biggest things it does. Uh, it banned all discrimination in voting on the basis of race, color, or language minority status. So, say if you're a Spanish speaker. Um, so, basically, this was the federal government enforcing the 15th Amendment. It was giving some teeth to the 15th Amendment. Okay. Because the 15th Amendment says that uh, folks cannot be discriminated against uh, in voting on the basis of race, right? That's that's the 15th Amendment. Mm. That's passed in 1870, and it's not until 1965 that we finally get this legislation upholding it. Yeah. Um, it also bans any test or device designed to prevent voting. So what that what means... Called? Yeah. Literacy tests, for example. Yeah. Um, so, like, let's say, you know, you're a black voter trying to register, and I'm, you know, registering folks... And I give you a test where you have to read a passage and summarize it to me. Well, guess what? You know, you're a sharecropper, you're a sharecropper who got a third grade education. You really can't read. So you're unable to get registered to vote. Yeah, that's done. And even if I could, you'd yeah. tell me if I summarized it correctly. <laughs> right, exactly. It gave so much discretion to white officials who had an interest in upholding Jim Crow. Uh, it gave them so many reasons to be able to deny black folks the right to vote, yeah. even if they did everything right. And you did have stories like that where black folks would try to register to vote and they'd know the answer to the questions and they'd still not let them register. Like, oh, you know, oh, there's a paperwork problem or, oh, you know, we no, you just can't. I'm sorry. We don't we don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, literacy tests are the big example. Knowledge tests. So like those questions in the Virginia State Constitution about what the Virginia State Constitution is. I, I know one test that got used was, tell me the preamble to the United States Constitution. Just, yeah, and then you'd have to recite the preamble the to the... people in order to form a more perfect... Yeah, community. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you, yeah, and then they might follow that up with, okay, what does that mean? And then, of course, again, they get the discretion to decide whether your answer whether is good right. or not. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, proof of good character. So... Oh, if you have a reputation of as being a person of bad character, you have to you have to somehow prove that no, you're a person of good character, and that's why I can vote. Or you have to bring someone along who can vouch for you, and, and and of course they have to be deemed a credible character witness. And again, this is all at the discretion of white officials. Yeah. Um. So that those are some of the bigger provisions. In effect, it says yeah, you can no longer deny black folks the right to vote. So, it also has a few other provisions, but do you have any other questions before I go forward with those? Not immediately. Okay. So, another thing it does is it prevents what's called vote dilution. So, folks, you've probably heard the word gerrymander at some point. I mean, it gets mentioned a lot these days. Um, And so, all gerrymandering is, for those who don't know or who are unclear... It means drawing legislative maps for, say, the state house or for the House of Representatives and Congress, um, basically uh, diluting the power of certain groups or entrenching the power of certain people or political parties, 
right? And one thing that was done in the Jim Crow South was you had these real attempts to, as much as possible, dilute the power of black populations. So you'd draw district lines so that black voters could not consolidate into one block and vote against the white incumbent, right? That that was deliberately done. That's called racial gerrymandering. Um, so essentially, is that like putting... What ninety nine percent of the black vote in one area, and yes. then one percent yeah. gets spread around. Yeah, that's to... called packing. Okay, yep, yeah. that's where you die. Yeah, you see that a lot in the South to this day. Um, but basically, it said you can't do that too much, right? You can't. You have to give black folks a fair shot at representation, mm-hmm. right? So you have to have districts that appropriately give a decent amount of power to the black folks in that place. Um, So basically it outlaws race-based gerrymandering. A a good example of this recently um, was, this was just a few months ago uh, in Virginia. I'm I'm picking on your home state here. Please do. (laughs) Uh, In Virginia, some of the house of delegates. So their, their state house, some of those maps were drawn in such a way that was pretty clearly intended by the Republicans to dilute the power of the black vote there. In 2018. Uh, Just, yeah, they drew this map, I think, back in 2011. But yeah, it finally got thrown out. Oh, okay. Yes, and they had to redraw the map to make it more fair and to properly account for the large chunk of black voters in southeastern Virginia around the Richmond and Virginia Beach area. Um. So that's a recent example of the Voting Rights Act being used to deal with race, uh, racial gerrymandering. Mm-hmm. Um, so any questions there? No, I'm, I'm pretty good on gerrymandering. Okay. Yes. And we are going to come back to gerrymandering probably in future episodes, but just as a general summary, I think that does a pretty good job of explaining it. Um, so one thing the Voting Rights Act also did was it provided a coverage formula. Um, So basically, states and jurisdictions with a history of discrimination in voting uh, were then subjected to this formula, right? So some examples of states that were covered. You might be surprised (laughs) to hear this one. Virginia. I know. I'm sorry, my friends. South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Mississippi. a few, uh, several others, but what you might notice about those states, what what do they have in common? Uh, they sound like they all start with the same letter. Okay, first of all, that's just <laughs> not true. So you shut your mouth. But they're southern states, right? I mean, they're in the good old American South. Yes. Right? And so it's because these histories, uh, these states had histories of Jim Crow laws and discrimination that made it so that black folks had a really hard time voting. Um, And so, basically, if you were subjected to the coverage formula in the act, Mm -hmm. uh, you were then subjected to what is called preclearance. So, let's say you're Alabama, right? Yeah. And let's say you want to submit a change in your voting laws. Okay? Okay. Guess what? I'm the federal government, and you have to submit... Your uh, proposed changes in voting laws to the Justice Department in order to get them approved. But isn't this a state's right thing? <laughs> well, that's <laughs> that's, that, that's what Alabama would say, and we're going to talk about that uh, a little later. But 
Um, yes. So basically, you have to prove to me, the mm-hmm. federal government, uh, that your proposed voting law changes do not weaken the power of black voters or do not make it harder for them to vote. So Alabama, I have to prove that I'm not racist. In effect. In my laws. In, in the, effect, yeah. yes. And most of the time, um, when this provision was still in effect, we're going to get to this more in a moment, but uh, they did get approved. Because states knew, southern states knew, that if they submitted a law that was very obviously discriminatory uh, in its intent, the Justice Department was going to deny them. Mm-hmm. Um, so <clears throat> basically you had... To If you were a southern state, and there were a few other states and counties subjected to this, but it was mostly in the south, you had to submit your proposed changes in voting laws to the federal government uh, to, excuse me, to be approved. Okay. Um, now, interestingly enough, there are bail-in and bail-out provisions where essentially, let's say you're like, oh, I've been so good. I've been so good. I, I've just, I've not been racist at all in my this voting laws. Yeah, it has to be more than a year. <laughs> uh, please ba- bail me out. And in some cases, usually on the county level, uh, the federal government looks and says, you know what? Yeah, actually, you don't need to be subjected to preclearance anymore because it's very obvious that you have been scrupulous about not discriminating against black voters and that we, you don't have to... Uh, submit to this extra burden anymore does that mean there are only a few states now that are that do go through pre-clearance no states go through pre-clearance now my friend thanks to our trusty friends at the united states supreme court oh boy when did that happen 2013 we're gonna get there in a second okay um and then it has bail-in provisions where if a county or a state is shown to be discriminatory in its voting practice uh, a lawsuit can be filed, mm-hmm. and a a judge of the D.C. District Court, so a federal court based in Washington, D.C., can say, you know what? Yeah, you need to now have preclearance sub- uh, subjected to you because it's obvious that you cannot be trusted to not discriminate against uh, minority voters. Who submits that data? How do they know that? Civil rights organizations um, will file lawsuits like this, okay. and Congress also keeps track of this stuff. Congress has uh, done several studies on which states and jurisdictions uh, do the most discrimination. Okay, And in fact, uh, the Voting Rights Act is a very, very popular piece of legislation, mm-hmm. and it's been updated many times. Um, so it's been updated in 1970, 1975, 1982, 92, and most recently in 2006. Okay. Um, and the coverage formula that is most recently used comes from 1975 because it's been found by Congress to be still an adequate formula where it's like, yep, these states still have problems with regards to uh, making sure voters – uh, voters of color, particularly black voters, are respected at the polls. Um, so we're going to continue to subject them to this extra burden because we feel it is necessary to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're wondering, well, Connell, what is that coverage formula? <clears throat> Let me tell you. Ah, yes, so, I was wondering that. Sorry, okay. I was looking for a pen. <laughs> Thanks. There you go. So... <clears throat> The coverage formula is, as of November 1964, 1968, or 1972, if you have used a test or device to restrict voting, and you have less than one half uh, of your eligible voting population registered to vote 
on the above dates, and less than one-half of your eligible citizens voted in the presidential election of 1964, 1968, or 1972. Those have been found to be adequate metrics by which to use this formula. Hmm. Uh, finally, there is one last provision uh, of the Voting Rights Act that I think we should talk about before we talk about our friends at the Supreme Court. So... What up? Sorry. No, you're good. We're just recording a podcast, but no, like, like I can I can edit shit and also, you know, hey, well, you can be in our first episode. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> you guys like just starting it out? Yeah. No, we've been going like for, uh, uh, why does this say, oh, we're, uh, we're on hour two. Our hour two. Yeah. 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 How's it going? It's going good. How are y'all doing? Good. Talking about the Voting Rights Act in 1965, uh, yep. going into the history and uh, all that good stuff. You know, think it's still very important today. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, I'm not going to lie. A lot of my political information I get from this guy right here. Same. <laughs> That's why we're doing this. He's a wealth of information. Thank you. <laughs> um, I might be making a little bit of background noise. I'm going to try to stay. That's fine. Yeah, we're almost done. We already had background noise earlier. It's, it's all, right. all yeah. good. <laughs> um, so, uh, the final provision that I think we should talk about because it kind of speaks to what the federal government was trying to address was the appointment of examiners and observers. So until 2006, the most recent update of the law, the federal government actually could appoint um, examiners to oversee a jurisdiction's uh, voting process. And essentially what these examiners could do is they were empowered to register to vote. So essentially, um, if this examiner saw that a, an official was not allowing a black person to register to vote they could then register them to vote oh yeah which is quite powerful because like it's essentially the federal government saying yeah we can send people empowered to register people to vote in your state because we don't trust the officials in your state to be honest in their administration of elections Mm -hmm. right um and as time went on you know the southern states eventually acceded and were like okay Black folks can vote. So the last time an examiner actually registered someone to vote was 1983. But up until that point, they often did register people. Uh, The first year of the Voting Rights Act being in effect, 250,000 new black voters registered to vote. And about a third of those were registered by these examiners. So examiners was they were established by the Voting Rights Act. Yes. Yeah. And then we still have observers. So observers aren't quite examiners. Observers Mm -hmm. aren't empowered to register people to vote. Mm -hmm. Essentially what they do, and they're still uh, sometimes used, uh, they go to problematic jurisdictions and observe the voting process. Um, So they basically just make sure that elections are being administered fairly. People who want to register to vote are registering to vote uh, and things like that. Right. So that there aren't any there isn't any discrimination going on. Yeah. Um, And so it's basically just ensuring that elections are conducted fairly. Right. And that people aren't being discriminated against, which, as we have discussed, has unfortunately been quite a big problem in American history. So I think that covers the general outline of the Voting Rights Act, what it does, why it was so transformational, why in my honest opinion, we still need it today. Um, Mm -hmm. Because unfortunately, while a lot of the Voting Rights Act is still in effect, uh, there is one provision, the preclearance provision that we discussed, 
that is no longer in effect. Mm-hmm. And and you think there are some states that need it reinforced, need to be reinstated into the preclearance? Absolutely. Absolutely, my friend. The last few years have made that utterly obvious with all the attempts at voter ID laws and other attempts at voter suppression we've seen in Republican-dominated states. That's why I needed the pen earlier, was to jot down modern-day voting rights issues? <laughs> question mark, exactly. question mark, question mark. And that's why we chose the Voting Rights Act here, because we still see these issues. Like, it's different now. It's not It's not an official saying, well, we don't let blacks register to vote. It's, it's someone saying... It's not a poll tax. It's not it, a literacy test. Yeah, it's, well, do you have the proper ID that meets all of these specifications? Oh, you don't? Well, that's too bad, right? Mm-hmm. Or it's closing precincts in majority black areas and saying oh well we've now consolidated the precincts and oh i guess that now doubles or triples your waiting time to vote oh too bad so sad right so it looks different but we still we still have these issues it's just instead of it being jim crow it's his son james crow esquire James Crow Esquire. <laughs> he went to law school, so now he gets to say, oh, okay. "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it took me a minute. There you go. There you go. <laughs> He's got a cool name now. Oh yeah, he does, but not not such a cool purpose. No, no. <laughs> so, <clears throat> the Supreme Court. Yes. What about it? What about the Supreme Court indeed, my friend? <laughs> well, the reason we don't have free clearance now is because of a decision the Supreme Court made in 2013. Okay. So the uh, the ruling was in the case Shelby County versus Holder. So this was in 2013. It was the Obama administration. And Shelby County, uh, Alabama, sued Eric Holder, the then uh, attorney general, saying, we don't want to be subjected to preclearance anymore. We think it's unfair. We think it violates our rights as a state to make our own laws and not have the federal government intrude upon them. Hmm. And we also just don't think it's necessary anymore. Right? Sorry, Uh, where was this guy from? uh, Shelby County, Alabama. Alabama. Yeah. So the Supreme Court ultimately agreed with Shelby County, and it ruled five to four in its favor. So basically it said that the coverage formula used by the Voting Rights Act to determine preclearance was unconstitutional. Okay. Uh, and Justice Roberts, in his opinion, said it's outdated in oh so many words that uh, it's from 1975, right? It's, there needs to be a new formula because this one is unfair and it poses an undue burden on these states and it's just not needed anymore because, to quote him, the South has changed. Uh, that that is what he said um, and it also kind of leaned very heavily on states rights right the 10th amendment yeah where it's like the states have the right to make their own laws and not have the federal government just tell them what's what mm-hmm. right it, it essentially said that look you can't just interfere with the states voting willy-nilly on the basis of an outdated formula of course, this drew some protest from the liberal wing of the court. Mm-hmm. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious RBG, yes. uh, wrote a dissent, a very fiery dissent that was... I'd love to hear it. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, qu- I'll quote or paraphrase one passage, but she basically said, look, you know, the reason that 
Congress still uses the 1975 formula is that every time they updated the Voting Rights Act in the 80s, the 90s, and in 2006, they found that this formula originated, yes, in the 1970s, still worked. It was still it was still good for determining which states still had problems with this type of thing and thus still needed to be subjected to extra scrutiny by the government. It's not arbitrary at all. And one thing uh, Sonia Sotomayor, another liberal justice, pointed out during the arguments was, well, look, Alabama, under any formula that you could devise, would be subjected to it because of Alabama's history as a state, yeah. right? Alabama has an extensive history of segregation, of Jim Crow, and of voting discrimination, right? And so any any formula which tried to account for that type of history, which still shows up in various ways today, would of course include Alabama. So why is it that you want to be exempted from these provisions unless you want to make it harder for black folks to vote and not have to get the federal government's uh, approval to change your voting laws. 50, 60 years since the civil rights movement is not a long time. Exactly. At all. <laughs> and going off of that point, uh, one thing, the most famous line from RBG's dissent was what she said uh, was this, essentially this, saying that we no longer need uh, the Voting Rights Act uh, because uh, the country has changed is like saying you no longer need an umbrella when it's raining because you are not wet. I see. Yes. You take the umbrella yeah, you away. Take, you take the umbrella you're away, gonna... you're going to get wet. <laughs> right? Jeez. And it's and that's I agree with her, right? Yeah. Because under any formula that Congress could devise, and by the way, Congress has found this formula time and time again to be good, to be a sound formula, right? Why fix and it if it's George not Bush Signed, George W. Bush signed the most recent update to mm-hmm. the Voting Rights Act. It was passed overwhelmingly in Congress. Mm-hmm. It passed like ninety-eight to two in the Senate in two thousand six. What what thing does the Senate agree on these days? Ninety-eight to two. I mean, I'm just saying here. Like, yes, the conservative arguments maybe on the face sound good and reasonable, but you have to consider what the ulterior motive is. Yeah. Yes. And what would you say that ulterior motive is? Uh, probably to give states, you know, to, to uh, yeah, just, yeah, be more lax on states so they can change the, I, how, how do I word this? God, I sound incoherent right now. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> yeah, give them more freedom to suppress votes. Exactly. Right. And that was what this was seen as. Essentially, the Supreme Court granting states the leeway to uh, pass laws that harms minority voting. And just as a general note, a few hours after the Supreme Court issued uh, this decision, the Texas legislature passed a new voter ID law. So just to give you an idea, and ever since this decision, you've seen a proliferation in these types of laws, particularly in the South, but not just the South, uh, that make it harder for certain groups of people to vote. And one recent example where you saw uh, black folks having uh, their votes suppressed pretty pretty brazenly uh, was in Georgia in 2018 in the gubernatorial race, mm-hmm. Stacey Abrams against Brian Kemp, right? You saw, and Brian Kemp, by the way, he was a secretary of state. So he was charged with administering 
the election in Georgia that, oh, just coincidentally also happens to be showing black voters waiting in lines for hours and hours on end while voting machines were sitting in warehouses. Oh, my God. Yeah. So we still see this and we still need this. So the Voting Rights Act is still very much needed. To to use RBG's metaphor, we still need that umbrella, folks. Like, it's not... The country has still not... raining. Yeah, it's still raining. Racism <laughs> is still here in the South. Maybe, yes, it has changed to some extent, but it still is haunted by that legacy of Jim Crow. You don't get over that to your point in 50 or 60 years. Mm-hmm. You just don't. Mm-hmm. Dang. Well, I've learned a lot today. <laughs> I hope you have. It was uh, good to answer your questions. Um, should we? So the the pin that we put in a long time ago uh, about modern day segregation uh, is yeah. that something we want to touch on right now, or or are, how are you feeling? We've been we've been going for an hour and fifteen minutes. Are I'm you tired? Feeling like we this is a good point to stop. I think um, so too. I think I don't want to overwhelm people also because this was a lot. This was informationally are you dense. Overwhelmed? <laughs> no, I'm fine. <laughs> although I do have a phone call at seven. Oh, um, so six forty. So yeah. Well, I should let you prep for that. Yeah. This well, I mean, been, you can just. This has been great. Yeah, it's good to good to have you, my guy. I'm currently shaking his We're hand. We're shaking hands right now <laughs> for all of you at home listening in. Um, yeah. Well, thanks for listening. I just turned the microphone around to the good side. I gave Connell the good side since he does most of the talking, but now I'm going to use the good side for just a moment. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um. Hopefully we'll be doing a lot more of these. Connell and I like to talk, so <laughs> I don't think there would be any reason why there would be a pause or a hold on these podcasts. So I'm really hoping that we get to do some more of these Maybe real soon. once a week, thereabouts. That sounds good to me. Yeah. We're just deciding this right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is kind of on the fly. We still haven't named the podcast. So. No. <laughs> this has been Wivided. This has been the stinky cheese, the oh scary God. dairy. The, um, oh, my God. This has been the Green Bay Packers podcast. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. I'm sorry for him. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. So, well, thanks again. Um I'll see you real soon. We'll see you all real soon. Hell yeah. Hell yeah.